Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perot, executive producer of the Broken Brain docuseries. This podcast is dedicated to continuing the conversations that Dr. Hyman and I started during the Broken Brain series. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we think will help you improve your brain health, feel better, and most importantly, live your best life. Today's guest on the podcast is a dear friend of mine, Light Watkins. Former Gap fashion model, Light Watkins first began attending yoga classes and meditation circles in between casting calls in New York City. Since 1998, Light has been active in the wellness space, first as a practitioner and later as an apprentice to his Vedic meditation teacher, and finally in 2007 as a meditation teacher himself. Light's most recent book, Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, was released earlier this year, and you can check it out on Amazon. Light writes articles on meditation and happiness, leads sold-out meditation trainings and retreats, and produces The Shine, a global pop-up inspirational variety show with the mission to inspire. We've talked a lot about meditation on the Broken Brain Podcast, but one of the reasons I think you'll really enjoy listening to this interview is because it's focused on all the practical aspects of starting a meditation practice and keeping it up. To start us off in our interview, I asked Light to talk about the common myths that people have about meditation. Well, I'll give you a real world scenario. Like I've been doing these festivals with Wanderlust and other, I do other, you know, workshops and talks around. I did one at Feel Good. Um, and I'll, which means that I'll, I'll get in front of the audience. I'll speak about what it means to meditate with success, which basically is counterintuitive to what we think meditation is, which is the classical approach where you have to sit like a frozen sculpture of a Buddha statue. A man with a long beard yeah. sitting in the Himalayas with his shirt off right, and legs crossed. Focused and all of those things. Yeah, so... Chanting Om. Right. So while I'm giving the, the preamble to the meditation, people are sitting there and they're just listening to me, right? And whether they're sitting on a cushion or on a chair, usually they're sitting there in a way that they would sit and listen to anyone, in a way that any of us would sit and listen, right? So which means you look around the room, there's no real uniformity. People are just kind of sitting however they sit. Then I say, okay, now we're going to do a meditation experience. And every time I do that, you see people starting to straighten up and, you know, take their back off the back of the chair and start crossing their leg. Yeah. And I tell them, stop, stop stop what you're doing and I said what was wrong with the play, the way you were already sitting you were already sitting in a way that felt comfortable enough for you to listen to what I had to say so that you weren't distracted by your body and I said one of the biggest misconceptions of meditation is that that's not okay to sit comfortably and that the reality is that it actually is preferred to sit comfortably when you meditate you don't have to sit like you know, you see these images on, on Google. In fact, I got a newsletter the other day from someone who's, who's now referring to themselves as a meditation teacher, which is happening a lot more, more and more these days. And there was a picture of him sitting cross-legged on a fountain, on the edge of a fountain, right? So one knee was over the water, the other knee was over the land, and he was sitting kind of on the, on the rim of the fountain in that classical back straight. It looked like he had to balance, right? In order to sit like that with his fingertips together. And it's just this, it's, there's this, it was the epitome of the stereotype of what meditation is supposed to look like. So if you're just a regular person, if you're a truck driver, if you're a burger flipper, if you, you know, if you're a parent with eight or nine kids and you see that picture of what they're gonna teach you oh, I got to go find a fountain to sit on like that because I guess that's supposed to be serene, right? Or maybe, gonna, the, maybe the idea that even meditation is supposed to be tough. It should be hard. Right, exactly. And that's the thing. A lot of people have run with this, this description of meditation based on what, though? Based on what? And when you start to dig a little bit, what you find is that people got their ideas from someone who did, had no clue what they were doing. And... Usually you just kind of parrot a yoga teacher, for instance, right? A yoga teacher says, sit with your back straight, bring your fingers together, and then they'll give an explanation because it circulates the energy in the body. Okay, have you ever felt 
your energy circulating in your body? <laughs> Probably not, right? Sit up straight so your chakras can be aligned. Okay, well, what does it feel like when your chakras are not aligned? I don't know. I've never really felt it. And what happens with yoga is that we project expert status onto yoga teachers when it comes to meditation. And meanwhile, you'll appreciate this, yoga teachers don't get any meditation training in terms of teaching other people how to meditate or even teaching themselves how to meditate in their yoga teacher training. It's kind of like how doctors, when they go to medical school, they don't get nutritional training. They don't get any sort of comprehensive nutritional training, right? They get, I think, what is it, like an hour of nutritional training in three or four Basically, years. Yep. So they're not nutritional experts. So if a doctor is advising you on your diet plan and they haven't studied nutrition, then it's like a yoga teacher telling you how to meditate and they haven't really studied meditation. Or you could have the opposite and you have these like schools of different meditation. It could be Zen, it could be mm -hmm. Buddhist, where they... You know, I mean, they have their own teachings and style, but they project almost like a monk-like approach because yeah. they feel like that traditional style of Zen Buddhism right. and like the teacher smacking the student with a stick because right. they're not sitting up straight. They're an, they've been taught, they think that they're an expert, but they still have this very like almost like militant approach to meditation. Yeah, so there, there's definitely the more, um, there's definitely the more uh, rigid aspects. But you know what? I actually... I don't mind that as much because someone who is studied and who has a teacher and who comes from a lineage, they usually have a greater appreciation for structure and limitation. And that's what a lot of these kind of new fly-by-night meditation teachers lack. You know, you, these guys are the ones that say, you know, just do whatever you want. Just listen to the body and, you know, there's no right way to meditate. And I agree with the sense that there's no right way to meditate for everybody, but I think whatever you're doing, you want to do that same thing over and over so that you can start to feel some sense of progress with that technique, right? And most importantly, it sounds like you're trying to bring to the table that, I mean, ultimately this should feel good. Right, well, th th and, that, and that's my lane in the meditation, uh, quote-unquote, market, is, yeah, there are techniques that, may be effective but it feels like you're having it feels like an uphill battle and and what i've been showing people is how to meditate in a way that actually feels enjoyable now what the science says is that meditation doesn't have to be rigid in order to be effective in fact you can have a very very deep profound enjoyable experience with your back supported in the same physical position that you would be in if you were binge watching Netflix. And so if you don't have to sit like a monk in order to achieve the same state of awareness, why would you do that? If it makes the experience feel a hundred times harder, right? So taking the, the hardship out of the meditation, what you find is that actually you don't need to be special in order to benefit from meditation. You don't have to have a background in the yoga sutras. You don't have to, it doesn't even matter if you've never taken a yoga class in your entire life, you can still achieve very, very deep states of awareness that can create a sense of relaxation in your body that will then yield all of the classic benefits that we've been now seeing in meditation research. Um, as a teacher, one of the biggest benefits and the fastest benefit that I have seen people have is they start sleeping better. And when you understand the biochemistry of meditation, you know, again, when you are sitting in a way that feels comfortable, you elicit what's called the relaxation response, which is known to be one of the deepest states of rest the body can achieve without going into a coma. So it's actually deeper than sleep, minute for minute. And this is something that was, that, that term was coined back in the 1970s by a Harvard cardiologist by the name of Dr. Herbert Benson, who had been studying the stress reaction on chimpanzees. And he, you know, obviously found that 
he wasn't the person who discovered this, but he, he, was, he was studying what Walter Cannon had discovered and labeled the stress reaction or the fight or flight response, seeing how when you expose chimpanzees to electric charges, you know, their nervous systems would become hyper aware and, and uh, the entire priorities inside of the nervous system would start to change from uh, long-term survival functions to short-term survival functions. And so when he started studying meditators who were sitting comfortably, who had adopted a passive attitude with their mind, in other words, who were meditating in a way that felt enjoyable, he found that their nervous system started going in the opposite direction of the fight-or-flight reaction. And this was so profound that he didn't even tell anybody about it because in science in the 1970s, at the highest levels, there was no there was no acknowledgement of the connection between the mind and the body. They, those two things were seen as separate. There was no way the mind had any influence over the body, or the body had any influence over the mind. Which is why doctors would be sitting in the in the in the exam room smoking cigarettes, telling you about you know what uh, what you what you needed to do to stay healthy. So when he made his discoveries public, he came under a lot of scrutiny from his peers. And what I like about Dr. Benson and his whole story is that even though he discovered so many profound benefits from the practice of meditation, he refused to learn meditation himself. And the reason was because he didn't want to be seen as biased. So he did that almost as a sacrifice so that his colleagues would know that his interest in this research was purely scientific and it wasn't about pushing an agenda or anything like that and uh, I had actually had a conversation with him when I was doing research for my book recently and, and he, had, he said that he had literally just started meditating like five years ago Wow! Um, after, after all this time after studying it for years you sure he wasn't yeah. like sneaking a little meditation at home <laughs> going in the closet going to take a trip to uh the Caribbean and hiding in a hotel and getting a little meditation in. I don't know, possibly. But, you know, the thing is he ended up writing this book called The Relaxation Response, which outlined his whole uh, technique, and which was based essentially on transcendental meditation. And he said, look, you know, TM is great and it's powerful. And when he broke down the different components, he found that the things that were essential for eliciting the response were the relaxed body position. So he didn't say you should sit in a relaxed way. He said you actually have to sit in a relaxed way in order to elicit this response. The passive attitude, which is basically the antithesis of how most yoga teachers and other um, uh, more classically trained meditation teachers would instruct this student, which is to focus on something. And Dr. Benson was saying, you know, it's actually anti-focusing that causes this reaction. Yeah, you'll hear people say, like, focus on clearing your mind. Yeah, focus on clearing. <laughs> or let, it, let go of this thought, okay? How do you let go of a thought with, by thinking about letting go of a thought? It's yeah. like trying to push water out of a pool with a garden hose. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just... Anyway, so those are two important things. The those relax, are two. Sitting, up, sitting in a way that's like very re relaxing to you. That's right? very relaxed. Having a passive attitude. Passive attitude. And then a point of focus. Now, he used the word focus because, again, he'd never really been trained as a meditation teacher, which is what a lot of people end up doing is they use these words. They don't really know that actually a meditation teacher of that tradition would never use the word focus. So what he meant by that was have a sound or a word or a thought that you could use to initiate the relaxation response because the whole idea of of meditating in this way is that you're not staying on a word or point of focus ultimately when you start to go into those deeper states of awareness you don't even know you're meditating right so in that sense it's kind of like a lullaby for sleeping right you start off with a lullaby and then eventually the point is for the lullaby to induce sleep. So this point of focus, which Vincent says, it could be a prayer, could be some word you make up, could be something that just kind of makes you happy. You start with that and you have the passive attitude and then ultimately 
it makes you lose awareness that you're meditating. And that's where the meditation gets really yummy and deep and, and uh, profound. And these principles, you know, come from the, you talked about TM, Transcendental Meditation, Vedic Meditation. These are core principles of these uh, teachings. But for those who are listening and who have never heard these terms before, what is this lineage and where did it come from? Like, so Transcendental Meditation is kind of like the CrossFit of meditation. And, and, I'm, and I'll mean that, you know, <laughs> you're, you're, it's, you're working out. So it's, people get injured regularly? Is that no, what you're no, saying? No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's the biggest brand name. Yeah. Right? Just like CrossFit is a huge brand name in the yeah. physical exercise community. And uh, Vedic meditation is kind of like an off-brand name of the same thing, right? And what makes those two uh, approaches distinct from all the from Zen meditation, Vipassana meditation, Buddhist meditation, insight meditation, etc., is that those are known to be householder styles of meditating, which means, and this was new information for me before I met my teacher, I didn't realize that there were different styles of meditation that were best suited for monastic people, and then there were other styles that were best suited for householders. And those two broad styles have coexisted for thousands of years. And so I think when most people think about meditation, we kind of think about it and associate it with the monastic traditions, which is where you see the people sitting in a robe on the cliffside with their legs crossed with the back straight. And so what, um, what the, the sages would suggest is that monastic people are, have an easier time practicing the more rigid techniques because they're priorities are such that they get excited about rigidity when it comes to spiritual practice. And we have to also understand that where this stuff comes from back in India, people don't meditate to be more productive at work. People don't meditate to sleep better at night like we do here in the West. People meditate for one reason, to be closer to God, right? Spiritual liberation to become self-realized. In the West, we don't really care about that as much. Even though that's essentially what's happening, we want to use meditation as a productivity tool, as a hack, a life hack almost. Or and, just even experience less anxiety. Or less anxiety, yeah, so that we can be more productive, which essentially means so I can be more available to my family or to make more money or whatever our priorities are. So for us, you know, what makes you a householder is you, you actually like the idea of having a job and being a productive citizen of society and having a family or having friends or having a community, watching the game, you know, sitting around reading books, having different hairstyles, wearing different clothes every day, eating different cuisines on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's, it's not that you need to try to be a householder. You already are a householder. And because you're already a householder, then it would be recommended that you would adopt a householder style of meditating, which will be best suited to your priorities, which means you may love meditating, but it's not the only thing you love. You also love spending time with your family. So what you need is a, an approach to meditation that allows you to be a better parent and a more productive employer so that you can get your work done a lot more efficiently so you have more time to spend with your family and so that you can create more resources and et cetera, et cetera. And so that's kind of what the Vedic and the TM uh, communities have, have found is that householders have a much easier time adopting those forms of meditation in their regular lives as opposed to the monastic traditions. And this is classic with monastic traditions. Monastic traditions usually require you to change something around your life in order to practice them. In other words, they may require you to stop cursing or to become a vegetarian or to give up or alcohol just, or, or just even the time commitment. You talk about certain meditation an traditions, hour, two yeah, hours, an a day. hour in the morning, an hour in the evening. And yeah. It's like, and so that's basically putting you on a more monastic path. But if you have eight kids or three jobs, you know, or, a lot of people with eight kids, <laughs> even if you have one kid, my teacher actually has 10 children. Wow. So, um, and, but the other thing that I want to be very clear about, even though my work in this book, bliss more stems from 
the Vedic and TM tradition, the other thing that makes those two styles distinct from everything else is you get personal instruction from a teacher and you get supported by that teacher, which is kind of the old school way of achieving a degree of mastery in meditation. In other words, no one who became a teacher of those styles did so from a book or from an app or you know from teaching themselves or something like that. Everyone has a teacher and that teacher has a teacher and that teacher has a teacher and if you keep tracing the steps back eventually you're going to arrive back at the same lineage of teachers from India who have passed the knowledge down in its traditions. So. And do you feel it's important, you know, people are listening here and just even the idea of like them taking a few minutes a day to meditate and other stuff. Do you feel like it's really important for people to have a teacher? Is it that you're more committed? You should go find a teacher. Can we just get started with the idea of something like your book or an app? What are your feelings on that? Yeah. So I'm an advocate for every form of meditation. Um, and the reason I wrote my book is because it's such a huge leap from not meditating at all to going on a quest to find a teacher without really understanding the value of it. And so the book is really just a gateway to get people to understand that, look, there's nothing arbitrary about meditation, right? You thought that meditation was just about showing up with a cushion and closing your eyes. And it's kind of like saying surfing is just about showing up at the beach with a surfboard, right? You, there's so many considerations in order to optimize the experience. You have to have a wetsuit. If, you, if the water is a certain temperature, you have to have a certain length of board based on your experience. You have, to, you have to know how to carry the board out into the water so it doesn't smack you in the face and break your nose. You have to know how to sit on the board. You have to know how to jump up on the board. You have to know so many things. Otherwise, the experience is gonna be completely miserable. And, and like a that, big part of your work is also helping people unlearn all the misconceptions. Right. If you thought meditation was you yeah. know, floating on your back on a wave, right. You know, you have to help teach people that, no, actually, there is a surfboard. Right, exactly. So, um, so yeah, I think once people read all that in the book, they'll say, oh, wait a minute, there's so much more to this than I thought. This is great for starting my home practice, but if I want to get, if I want to take it more seriously, you know, if I really want to optimize the time that I'm investing in this practice and it's not just you know i recommend 20 minutes a day if not 40 minutes right that adds up you're talking 20 minutes times seven times 50 times however many years you're going to be on the planet that's a significant amount of time i did the math the other day and i think in a 40-year span that's one year of your life you're going to spend meditating straight and people hear that and they feel really intimidated you know on this podcast we're always trying to think about like how do we break it down how do we get started and, and so just let's, let's take it a little bit like back to like somebody's listening here. They're not meditating at all. They're super interested in it. They even believe in the idea of it. They've seen in our broken brain docuseries, they've seen Dr. Hyman and a few other people talk about meditation and how powerful it can be. What are the steps on getting started? Well, I would say, you know, and I, I know I'm biased, but I would say uh, if you get your hands on a copy of Bliss More, this is the book I wish I had back when I was spending three and four years struggling to meditate using shoddy guesswork, not quite sure if I was doing it right. And so this will become your Rosetta Stone. I, you know, it's kind of, I read this book, and you've probably read it too, The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. Did you, you read that yep. book, right? Did it completely revolutionize your understanding of what it means to be an entrepreneur? Or at least give you some benefits, some tips and what you were already doing? Oh, it definitely kickstarted that, you know, right. that specific side of optimization and work and entrepreneurship yeah, in and a way that I hadn't used business and all of these kinds of things. Yeah. And, and this book, I wrote it, that was my inspiration. Like I wanted to do a four hour work week of meditation and show people who may already be, be meditating in a way that is, um, maybe slowing uh, the, where they're not progressing as fast as they could be or people who aren't doing it at all. Just show them what's possible. Yeah? This is what's possible with your mind from just a book. So you can only imagine how much more progress you could make if you had someone who could actually sit down with you and, and, and teach you. And not everybody needs to go that or even wants to do that. But 
You know, I think apps are great for helping you track how many days you meditate. They're not great for teaching you how to meditate. It's mostly guided experiences, which which are nice. There isn't a whole lot of historical precedent for guided meditation. Uh, most meditation historically is silent meditation, seated, eyes closed, silent meditation. If you go to India, no one's like sitting around guiding you in telling you to visualize this or think about that. And I think that's kind of a, a way of compensating for our inability in, our, in the West to sit with silence. A lot of people just can't do that. So they say, okay, well, let me just, I'll speak to you while you're doing it. And that's kind of like watching television. You won't have to think about, you won't have to deal with what's happening in the mind because I'm going to show you, I'm going to tell you what to think about. So with the silent practice, which is kind of the, the real practice of meditation, um, when you can sit with silence, that's where you're really going to find the breakthroughs that I think you're looking for in the practice. And so, um, so once you graduate from the apps, then you, maybe you go to something like Bliss More and you do that for a while. And that'll show you how to sit in silence. And then once you are feeling like you can do that on a consistent basis, maybe you graduate to getting a teacher and, and uh, sitting down with them for a few days and they'll kind of take you to the next level and then they'll support you in your practice. So, you know, like I said, everything is, rele- is, 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 is relevant, but at some points you want to continue innovating and pushing the envelope a bit in your own in your own uh, understanding and practice what's the easy technique that you outline in your book blissmore the easy technique is an acronym for how to be passive because telling someone just be passive with your mind is not enough detailed information and what does that even mean does that mean you know to welcome in the happy thoughts, but then to reject all the bad thoughts, which is what people inevitably end up doing. So the easy method is really a description for how to handle the thoughts you would naturally reject, right? Thoughts that may create anxiety or thoughts about things that make you sad or afraid or angry or bored. And so the acronym is embrace. E is for embrace. A is for accept. S is for surrender to. And Y is for yield to. And they're basically all saying the same thing from different angles, right? In other words, whatever you're experiencing is great. That's it. You know, don't reject anything. Don't resist anything. Don't, don't feel sorry about anything because whatever you reject, you're going to, the mind works in such a way that it's going to uh, create more of those kinds of thoughts. And so you get the opposite of what you want. And the big secret of meditation is that the way to a quiet mind is through the the very thoughts that you would normally reject. If you lean into that, if you accept them, if you embrace them, and to go further, if you can celebrate them, if you can celebrate the mind's tendency to think, then beyond that, you find the stillness that you've been looking for in meditation. It's like that quote, what you resist will persist. Exactly. What you accept, you go beyond. That's right. Um, walk us through, like, if I had a video camera on you and take us through your meditation practice that you have, where do you sit? You would sit comfortably wherever you would sit to watch television. So on your couch, on your, in couch, your chair. On your bed. You don't want to be lying down, ideally. You want to be sitting up, but you want to have your back supported. You can have your hands and your feet at ease. And you want to have your head relatively free to move about. So in other words, don't slide down so far that you're resting your head back, staring up at the ceiling. That's still kind of in the sleepy type of position. And so once you're sitting comfortably, you obviously want to close your eyes and then um, you can start to get into what I call your simplest form of awareness, which basically is you minus your uh, control minus judgment around what you're thinking about. And you want to start to see the mind more as an ally instead of the obstacle or the enemy of the meditation. And then you're going to pick some sound or word that makes you happy, whatever it is. Could be the word love, could be the word heart, could be the sound of a child laughing. And you just very lightly place your attention on that happy thought, right? Just one thing. And so by saying to lightly place your attention on it, I'm not saying focus. I'm just saying 
that thought can be there kind of circulating around your awareness and then other thoughts may be there about the different sounds that are around you or the different sensations that you feel inside and eventually what will happen is you'll start to forget about the fact that you're meditating and you'll start to slip off into some other thoughts about some other things at which point you there's nothing to do except have that experience and then later on it'll dawn on you oh I'm meditating at which point you will start to lightly favor the happy thought again and that's basically the experience and you do that for 15 or 20 minutes with no expectation or anticipation of any result and you may have certain meditations where it feels like your mind is very active you may have other meditations where it feels like I'm falling asleep and you may have other periods of meditation where it feels like you're going into a very very deep states of awareness the biggest thing to remember is that you don't want to look for anything to happen don't go in there trying to make anything happen just the practice is really the attitude of being just passive with the whole thing because I think that's the challenge people come in with so many expectations of what they think meditation should be then they feel upset and sometimes even obsessive that they start thinking about a thought sometimes even especially in the beginning a really like negative thought yeah right they have really obsessive thought that's there and then it's usually the second thought, which is, I can't believe I'm thinking about that thought yeah. that people trip up on. Now they feel like they just can't do it. They're not doing it right. Yeah. And um, they want to quit. And, and I think I can say something that I think will help to help people reframe that experience. You know, what's been shown scientifically is that when we meditate in this way, the mind activates a rest network that causes your body your brain to start problem solving on your behalf. In other words, it'll start to calculate different solutions. And it gives the illusion of my mind is racing or obsessing or fixating on this particular problem. And that doesn't feel great, right? But when you realize what's really happening is that there's a problem solving mechanism that you have activated through meditation then you can kind of take a step back and maybe just witness it or just understand that this is not a bad thing. And then what will happen later on, either in the meditation or outside of meditation, is you'll get the answer. And that's what we call the eureka, the epiphany, or the aha moment, where you're walking through the grocery store, looking in the bread aisle, and then boom, the answer just comes. And that was the answer to that problem you've been thinking about for maybe weeks, months, maybe even years. And of course, meditation doesn't get the credit immediately because we think it just came, quote unquote, out of the blue, right? But once you do it enough times, you start to see the connection between, oh wow, I was obsessing over this thing, or I was simply just gathering my thoughts, wasn't even trying to find the answer, and then the answer just came, right? So. Once you start to see a sense of purpose behind the, the mechanisms, again, nothing is arbitrary about meditation, then it allows you to be more relaxed in those experiences. And you can even start to celebrate those experiences a lot easier. And here's the great part about it. The more relaxed you are, the deeper you go, the better it feels like it's working. But at the end of the day, we don't want to judge the effectiveness of meditation based on what we were thinking about, whether the mind was deep or surface or what have you, you really want to look at how you feel outside of the meditation. And if you meditate in this way that I'm describing for a few days, you'll start to see improvements in the quality of your sleep, which is no small thing because, you know, I know we don't know a lot about the science of sleep, but what we do know is that a lot of the rehabilitation of the brain and the body occurs during the nighttime sleep. So if you can enhance the quality of your rest at night, then usually other Things that have been offline start to come back online, such as digestion, immunity, etc. It seems like there's so much stimulants during the day that we use and turn to, to um, well, there's so much stimulation in our life in general, in the world that we live in, in modern day. But then there's also stimulation that we turn to, to either upregulate or downregulate our body, to distract ourselves from our feeling. One of the things that I often hear and that I've experienced myself is that when you step into the place of meditation, you can actually really also just genuinely feel what's happening inside. 
if you feel sad and you were previously distracting yourself from feeling that, that can come up. You know, if you feel like you want to slow down a little bit and give yourself more time to focus in, like whatever those feelings are that are sort of suppressed inside of you, they can um, come up and give the attention that they need. On the flip side, sometimes people are a little worried that will meditation bring up uncomfortable feelings for them, traumas, other stuff, stuff that they're just not ready to deal with right now. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, the, the, the reality is you're dealing with it anyway. Your body's dealing with it. And that's what slows us down. We that's just think we're not dealing with it. Right. We think intellectually I'm not dealing with it, but the body is dealing with it. And then if we don't, if we don't release this stuff, then ultimately we have to get it cut out. And it's very expensive and time-consuming, and everybody's sad around you when you have to go and get it cut out later on in the form of a tumor or some other kind of, you know, imbalance or diseased state, which when you look at the connections between stress and how it relates to the physical manifestation of that fight or flight reaction, there are strong connections. And anyone you can do this, anyone can do this right now, right? Here's a great little little exercise. Go on Google and type in fight flight response symptoms and go to any of those links on the first page and you're going to see about 200 maybe 400 symptoms and it's all there everything that people suffer from especially those things that doctors have no explanations for right dry mouth joint pain hair falling out skin problems can't see uh you know dry feet all these things are all on that list of symptoms because we don't realize how detrimental it is to keep the stress trapped inside of the body with no outlet. And that's one of the things that meditation does very well is it creates a release valve for past trauma and stuff may, you know, there's stuff that's probably been in our bodies for decades and it's just in there and the body's trying to cope with it and deal with it. And what ends up happening is our bodies will begin to habituate towards responding to the stress, even though there currently is no, trauma right but it's still in the body and so we don't release it and then ultimately we have to we start to see it in the diagnosis um, you know years from now not not realizing that it's connected with something from our past so when someone first starts meditating it's kind of like if you have this barrel of, of or drum of water and it's just full of water and the pressure has been pretty high and then you spike a hole in it there's going to be a big spout of stuff coming out and when people first start meditating it's not unusual for them to have heavy emotional releases and they start thinking well meditation is now making me feel sad or it's now making me feel whatever whatever but actually it's creating a release of a, a, an over um overdue release for your nervous system for your body to start getting rid of some of that stuff so that you can start to move back towards homeostasis and and it's not unusual for people to, to start experiencing remission in certain ailments or mental health issues after meditating for a few years now i don't want to position this as uh, some kind of silver bullet you know or um panacea for disease and illness meditation is not necessarily going to get rid of whatever you're doing but it will make whatever other interventions you are exposing your body to work a lot better if you have less stress in the nervous system so if you're on a gluten-free you know very healthy raw vegan diet it's going to your body is going to metabolize the minerals and the nutrients a lot more effectively if you have less stress in the body. Stress will basically form casings around the cells that will not let the cells take on the minerals and nutrients from all that very expensive, high-quality food that we're eating. And we may as well be eating McDonald's because that's the nutritional value that we could be getting if we have a high level of stress in the nervous system because that's not important when you're running away from a bear you know, metabolizing uh, kale when you could be, that energy could be used to thicken your blood and constrict your veins so that you don't bleed to death in case the lion 
catches up with you and, and, and uh, fangs into you. So I think when people understand the value of releasing the stress, it makes it a little bit easier to kind of sit through in the meditation. You've taught hundreds of students in person. I mean, thousands of you ask, if you add in the audiences that you've taught to uh, with meditation, separate from sleep, um, run down a few other areas of benefits that you've often heard from that people wouldn't necessarily expect that meditation might be tied into. I like to focus on the real world stuff. Obviously, there's, you know, we could talk about the corpus callosum and all this stuff uh, having to do with brain science, but I find that that stuff is hard to directly verify. And in a real world way, when you start meditating, what tends to happen is, again, you start sleeping better, you get better rest, which means you have more energy, which is huge. So you may find that you're more productive and you're more creative. And, you know, this whole thing with, oh, I'm not a creative person is BS. Everyone has creativity, whether it's how to mow a lawn uh, more effectively or how to innovate a certain type of other mechanism that you use in your day-to-day life. It's all, it all stems from creativity. It's not just painting and drawing and writing poetry. And so we're able to see more connections between things that we were missing before. And that increases efficiency when it comes to just day-to-day tasks. We're able to discriminate better, right? Not the bad kind of discrimination, but being able to see what should be my first priority today and what should be my second priority and what should be my third priority, right? If we find ourselves in a situation where we have poor health or we're in a really bad relationship, it's because somewhere down the line, we weren't able to see priorities very clearly, our priorities got screwed up. And when the priorities get screwed up, it always ends up in worse situations than we would have been in otherwise. So that's, that's no small thing. Being able to do more things at the same time without getting distracted, right? Being able to be accurate while being fast, while being calm. It's easy to do something calmly if you don't have to be fast, it's easy to be fast if you don't have to be calm, and it's easy to be calm and fast if you don't have to be accurate. But can we do all of those at the same time all together? And those are the different markers that have been tested thoroughly and shown that when you meditate after just a few weeks, your scores on those different markers tend to go up pretty significantly. And those are things that affect us in almost every single interaction that we have on a day-to-day basis, right? From driving, to parking, to communicating, to relating, food choices, you know, um, knowing the importance of relaxing during the day and how that can have a positive effect on, on uh, activity, um, relating, uh, sexual uh, interactions, um, being socializing. You know, when you're feeling happier inside and you're more rested inside, you ha- you're less prone to drink more alcohol than you would be if you're feeling miserable inside. So these kinds of things will show up in, your, in a day-to-day real-world situation. And this is what I try to teach people to look for when I'm working with them. I say, forget about all the scientific stuff about the brain and you know the nervous system. And that all sounds great, but this is how you're going to know you're on track. When you're out in the world, in the field as I call it, and you're more adaptable when you get a parking ticket and when things don't bug you as much yeah and when things don't go your way for five minutes someone doesn't text you back fast enough you're able to kind of tap into your inner source of fulfillment a lot easier so that you're no longer looking at that situation or that person as the source of your happiness and that changes everything because that influences every single decision you make If you're looking at a job and you're thinking, I don't really want to do this, but this job will give me money that will allow me to um, take my girlfriend on vacation and she'll be happy, so then I'll be happy. So that means your happiness is tied to like five things happening before you can be happy. Instead of having the same circumstance, but being happy inside, and then you look at that opportunity, that work opportunity, and you say to yourself, is that a good outlet for the happiness that I already have. And if it is, then you know inside and out that that is a good 
and a relevant way for you to spend your time. And if it's not, then it gives you an easier time discriminating and saying, you know what, that's not, that's not for me. And so then you don't have to debate and negotiate and barter with yourself with every single choice and get that paralysis of analysis around what should I be doing and I got now I have to go down to the psychic and the tarot card reader and the astrologist and you know find out what my next move should be. So that stuff slows us down because we are disconnected from our internal guidance which everyone has access to when things are in balance. And and when you do have access to it, the message is usually going to be okay, step away from your comfort zone. Because we have a tendency, we, we describe success as moving towards our comfort zone, you know, becoming more comfortable. And the reality of it is that we grow more, we expand more when we're uncomfortable. And so when we're listening to our intuition, nine times out of 10, the intuition is going to it's going to nudge us in the direction of stretching ourselves, making ourselves a little bit more uncomfortable, taking chances, taking risks, um, you know, putting ourselves in positions where we don't really know how it's going to turn out. Is there, can you remember, or can you think of a time where I know you've been meditating for a while where you made a major life decision after kind of becoming aware of something that you had in meditation that you'd feel comfortable sharing on oh, the podcast? So most recently, I sold all of my worldly possessions and anything that didn't fit into a carry-on bag, I got rid of. And I got rid of my apartment, I got rid of my car, um, I got rid of most of my clothes, and now I'm basically living from this carry-on bag in my backpack and, and having a more nomadic existence. And that was, you know, on the surface, it, it may seem like, oh, that's challenging or what have you but it's I was able to do it after I made the decision to do it because I've done it so many times in the past I've taken that leap of faith so to speak um, where I didn't quite know how things were going to turn out and most importantly it sounds like it felt like intuitively it yeah, was the just, right decision for the, you exactly I had the uh, I had the the hit the internal cue to do this and the message was no storage, no, no attachments, you know, no fallback, no just in case it doesn't work out, keep this. It was get rid of all of this stuff and just have the carry-on bag. And then you'll get your next clue. <laughs> so, and, and that's I, how it works. And you know? I think a lot of people can relate to that. They feel that intuition bubbling up inside yeah. of them, in their gut. Yeah. Right? We call it the gut. The gut is the second brain. Just as many nerve endings and neurons that we have in our actual brain. That's right. And they feel this deep intuition start to bubble up, but then all the layers of thoughts start to come in. And yeah, you get into your down. head. You get into your head around it, and, and what you're trying to help us do with the work out is, of it. is get us out of our head, so we can actually listen to that. Yeah. So the meditation you were saying, what is the you know, real world benefits? It connects you to your heart. So your heart overrides your head more often than not. It's not always going to be able to do that, but. When it does, and the heart message is, is louder and clearer than the head message is, then you're going to be able to take the leap a lot easier. And, it, and, and for me, in that situation, I actually postponed. Like, I've been getting that internal message for probably a year, maybe a year and a half before I finally decided to do it. So in my world, that's actually late. I was late to the party. But now that I've done it, of course, you know, everything seems great. And I haven't missed my stuff for one second. And I also noticed that I started, I, I had a, I started developing this very contentious relationship with my landlord. And uh, and things just started, did, things in my place just didn't really feel right. And so I started to see the signs, right? And that's what I was saying earlier: seeing connections between things that to everyone else you may just kind of miss or dismiss, uh, or chalk it up as something completely unrelated. But when you when you have the internal feedback on all the time it's kind of like with your email you know if you don't have a spam filter in your email it's not that you're not getting legitimate messages you're just gonna have to work a lot harder and be a lot more patient to sift through the nonsense in order to reach the gold meditation is like a spam filter it's a spam filter for the mind so you're able to kind of rise above the nonsense and kind of see what's relevant for you at any time and hopefully that gives you enough courage to take that leap uh, in the direction of the unknown 
And that's where usually we get the best experiences. The ones that you're going to end up writing in your memoir about 30 years from now are going to be the ones you never planned, you know, and you didn't know how it was going to turn out. Um, the other stuff that you have planned is the boring stuff. No one wants to hear about that. So I think this is the key really to the, to a more adventurous life is you realize you can't really go wrong when you listen to your internal guidance. Uh, talk to me about the shine. What is it? Why did you start it? And, and how does meditation fit into the shine? So that was another, um, that was another internal message that I got about five years ago. I sat on it for about a year. I, yeah, I remember talking to you about it. We were at yeah, we were in, New York. in New York and I told you about this idea for this community and, uh, and, and what was your intuition saying that that, it that, was that saying, started it coming It was saying up? to start this community that involved meditation and um, entertainment and philanthropy. And I had a, a point of reference. Some friends of mine down in Australia had been doing something similar called the Conscious Club, where they would get people together, maybe three or 400 people together, and uh, have a talk and have... Uh, some musical performances and some food and things like that. And, you know, as someone who doesn't really drink, I, you know, it obviously changes your social dynamic in America because so much of our adult social interaction revolves around alcohol. And I thought, you know, there must be other people out there who don't really drink or don't prioritize drinking, but who still like to have a great time and still like to be inspired. You know, I love a good TED talk. I love a great musical performance, a live performance even better. And, uh, and I love the idea of meditating in a group and just kind of weaving that into the experience kind of under the radar in a way where it's not a meditation event. It's, it's a entertainment event that where we happen to meditate. So I, um, I decided to go ahead and just take the leap and not really knowing how it was going to turn out. And uh, my meditations, you know, I'd be sitting there thinking about things. As I was saying earlier, you know, the brain starts this kind of problem solving mode. And then I was doing my taxes or something one afternoon and the name, the shine just came through. And I knew that it was, that was the name of the event. It just felt like that was, that, that that was going to be what the event was called. So I called up Lisa and I told her, I said, hey, um, it's going to be called The Shine. Um, that's the message that came through. And, and again, when you have these things happen all the time, you just recognize it a lot faster for what it is. You don't have to like do a lot of guesswork. I think, is that it? Uh, you know, because I've been through that. I've been meditating for 15, 16 years at that point. It's just this like deep knowing. Yeah, it's just a deep knowing. Yeah, but it, it didn't happen overnight is what I'm saying. Like it happens gradually and then you start trusting it more and more and more. And so then we started the first one. I sent an email out to all the people that I taught to meditate, probably like a thousand people in Los Angeles. Told them I was going to be doing this event at this little dance studio that we rented and come out. It was on a Wednesday night or something. We got about 12 people out that first night. None of them were from my list. <laughs> they were all from Lisa's uh, network. And uh, it didn't matter. I thought, you know, this is great because now I get to kind of uh, beta test it and work out the kinks and then I'll keep promoting it because I knew that from building my meditation practice and from pr prior to that building my yoga practice is really a consistency game. You just have to be consistent, and the more consistent you are, the more traction it'll start to get. And I knew that what we were doing, people would connect with because it was kind of everything I was interested in. And I felt like, you know, if I stay true to that, then other people would also kind of get what we we're trying to do. So the event was happening on a weekly basis. And, uh, and, and just so everybody can imagine, this is like, like uh, you said, you start off a small, you know, like little dance studio. Like a little place, people getting together. It's like an evening of inspiration. Right. It's like right? an hour, hour and a half long. You um, call it sometimes an uh, inspirational variety show. Inspirational variety show. But I was doing all the variety. Yeah. <laughs> there was no variety. <laughs> there was just me um, and Lisa. And then you guys started coming. You, and, you, you came to one. And I think that was around the first time we had taken a donation. And 
Lisa said, you know, like we should start taking a donation so that we can pay for the space. The space was costing me like 50 bucks a week or something like that, which I didn't really mind paying because I felt like, you know, it's good. It's a service and this is community service. And then I, we, we rounded up maybe $30, $40 that first time, maybe 50 bucks. And I thought to myself on the way home, I said, you know, I could spend this 50 bucks, pay for the next week's space, or I could give this money to somebody at the next event and tell them to go out and help people in some kind of meaningful way. And I think people would talk about that $50 a lot more than if I just spent it on the space. It'll have greater reverberations yeah. because of like how special the money was used. Right. So we did that. My friend Kahari won the money. I think he used it to help some kids get a music scholarship from some, for some music camp. And he ended up adding some of his own money to it. He came back. He told us all what he did. It inspired a bunch of people. And that next night we collected $80 out of the 20 people or so who were there. And that's where we really started to see the event start to build. And I, didn't know, I would have never guessed that that was going to be the thing that caused the, the event to get the most traction. And, uh, and so ever since then, the event migrated over to New York. And then people in London saw what we were doing, and they started doing an event over there. And um, You got some Francisco. great press coverage. We got all organic press. Never had a PR person, but we got written up in the New York Times. And we got covered in pretty much every major media outlet. The Guardian, Guardian, uh, CBS, NBC, and, and and a lot of the focus was, of course, it's very catchy. People were talking about how it's an alcohol-free event, but really behind that greater concept, it was like, wow, here's an evening where you can go and you can spend time uplifting yourself, and and not feel like you're fighting for space at the bar, right. and you know most people enjoy a drink here or there, but if they have the option to socialize and be inspired and connect with people who uplift them, they're going to want to throw a few of those nights into the mix too. Sure. But you know, when people go there, the thing is if you take any of these events in isolation and you say, Oh, okay, well that's just a talk or that's just a performance or that's just, you know, giving money away. But when you combine all those things together with the vibe, of the entire event. It's a really magical, powerful experience. And people walk away from there literally transformed from how they were when they came into the, into the event. And I love seeing that. And, uh, you know, it's hard work. None of us are making money on it. It's all volunteer staff and that comes with its own host of challenges. Um, but, but the friendships, the connections, the things you've built. And the, the thing that I love about the story and thank you so much for sharing it with our listeners here is, um, in our Broken Brain docuseries, we talked about the missing link, whether you're working on your meditation, whether you're working on your diet, whether you're trying to work on your fitness, is really community. And it's community and the group of friends and being around uplifting people. And the actions and the behaviors that we have are contagious. Mm. And if your best friend is drinking and overweight and not putting attention into being a better person and complaining, that's going to be contagious on us too. And here you are, even in LA, surprisingly, there's not that many regular events like that, that people right. could go to. It yeah. was actually one of a very few group of events that people could go to an evening of inspiration on a Saturday night and not be, you know, um, not be in a place that didn't make them, you know, leave feeling like a better person. Right. It's funny. I was talking to my friend earlier today about that same thing. Um, he had sent me this article about the kid who walked 20 miles to work because his car broke down. And, uh, and the owner of that company, it was a moving company, ended up buying him a car because he was so inspired by the kid's resolve. And I was saying to my friend, you know, if the news reported more things like that, it's contagious. We'd all be competing to be to do the doing the right thing. How can we do? How can we be the best at doing the right thing and being in integrity and working hard and you know and just being good people? But unfortunately, we we uh, the news is tends to lean so negatively. So that's one of the really key reasons behind the shine was to really offset what people see in the news and to to receive all of this content where we're, spot, we're highlighting people like that, people who really go the extra mile and above and beyond to do the right thing, even though they were suffering from depression or even though 
they were having these debilitating panic attacks. They still kept getting up again and again and again, knowing that they had to just do the right thing. And I don't think we hear those stories enough. And so that's, that became sort of the archetype of the shine talk was, you know, show, share with us your hero's journey of not just what you did that was awesome, but how did you get to that point? Who helped you along the way so that the people in the audience and who are watching on YouTube can see that and relate to you and know that you're not necessarily, you know, more special than someone else. You just, you, you were able to just, you had a great resolve and everybody has this resolve and this is how you kind of were able to figure that out. And maybe you can inspire other people to do the same. And right now, people who are listening, you know, The Shine is in New York, it's in L.A., it's in London, in San Francisco. And um, if people are out there listening and they want to start one in their area, you guys have basically set up a template and they yeah. can reach out. We have a whole kit for helping people independently organize The Shine. And, and, and just so every, everybody who's listening, if you didn't get the exact format, you know, it starts off with some live music, some meditation. There's like a TED-style talk, but just anybody who can come out and tell an authentic story about making a difference, their journey, what they went through, lessons that people can use. Then there's the shine on challenge where you take a little bit of the, you take the money after paying expenses and you pick somebody randomly in the audience to give them the money and tell them, hey, no strings attached, just go do something good in the world, but come back next time and tell us what you did. It's a great format. And uh, where can they find out more about the shine? Theshinemovement.org or just Google the shine and you'll see it. And if you're in LA, We'd love to see you at one of the events or New York. It's every other, every couple months. Uh, like, I want to come back to meditation and kind of close on that with some thoughts and everything. I think I'm like a lot of people who are listening. Uh, I've done meditation training. I'm passionate about meditation. I can sometimes fall into different cycles. There's times where I uh, am a crisis meditator, medita- meditator, where let's say like things are getting very overwhelming or there's a lot of different stuff that's going on in the business world or my personal life. I might say, okay, let me, let me take some time and really meditate today. And then I forget for a little bit. And then there's days where, you know, it's beautiful, sunny outside. I'm sitting, I go into meditation and then I come back in and I'm more, you know, very focused on it. I say, okay, I'm going to do 20 minutes a day, twice a day. And I do that for a little bit of time. You kind of come in and out of it a little bit. Um, that's just been my personal journey. You know, if I'm being transparent about it, I think some people who are listening here, you have the ones who are not familiar with meditation at all and want to get into it. You have the ones who truly believe in it, but have not yet even started. And the ones who kind of have dipped in and out, maybe trying different stuff. Um, for the ones who believe in it, but have not, uh, but the ones who believe in it, but have dipped in it a little bit and kind of find themselves falling in and out. Do you have any thoughts or tips for them on how to make meditation a regular part of their life? I think, you know, it's just like, it's like with, with, with uh, working out, right? If you hang out with a bunch of people that just sit on the couch watching Netflix shows all the time, it'll be really hard to get into the habit of working out. And if you surround yourself by people who are training and who are taking their physical fitness seriously, then it'll be a lot easier. You Same you, but it'll be a lot easier to kind of justify spending the time going to the gym. So obviously you can't force people to be your friends, but what you can do is you can curate your social media following with people who are already doing the things that you want to incorporate more of in your life. And that, that's how we can use social media for good to inspire us to do more of the things that we just want to do. And that's an easy thing you can do this afternoon. You can just go through, unfollow the people who aren't really, who aren't really adding value in that way to your life and start following. Usually if you follow, if you find one person who's, enthusiastic about meditation or what have you, such as myself, follow Light Watkins, right? I post a bunch of meditation content and then look at who I follow. And you'll find other people who are, you know, inspirational for me in the meditation space and just start to kind of go down that rabbit hole and see what you resonate with and just keep pruning and, you know, curating until you find that your social media circle of influence is leading you in the direction that you actually want to go in instead of, you know, justifying, helping you justify wasting a bunch of your time. I've got a free companion 21 day challenge, uh, with bliss more, and it's all connected through Instagram. So you can see other people who are on the challenge with you and you can connect with them as your buddy. If you need an accountability partner, um, 
And I think it's important to have some accountability as well when you're going through these things. But ultimately, you do something like that as consistently as you can for a few weeks, you'll find that the choice to do it on that fourth week is a lot easier than if you were just kind of dabbling and, you know, dipping your toe in. Light, thank you so much for joining us on the Broken Brain Podcast. Tell us where people can find out more about you, your website, and and your book, Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying. Uh, You can find everything on lightwatkins.com and follow me at at lightwatkins, L-I-G-H-T-W-A-T-K-I-N-S. Thank you again for sharing and giving that inspiration for the shine. I know it's inspired so many people to build community and uh, your book is really a simple go-to guide to get people started on meditation. I hope people check it out. Bliss more. Um, We'll be giving a few copies away on social media. So check out for that. Thanks brother. It's awesome being here. Appreciate you. Absolutely.